Bible handy. Hopefully, uh, I would say that is true of every week here at Rocky Mount Bible Church, but especially this week, we have a lot of ground to cover, and uh, you're going to need a Bible handy in order to make that possible. There are a bunch back there on the table. If you don't have uh, a copy with you, uh, feel free to take one of those. Joe Botto uh, is guarding them, and uh, he would love to hand you one. Just a couple of announcements before we go any further. Uh, again, uh, thank you, parents, for helping to keep the kids out of the the mud and the uh, minute danger out here. Some directory updates. Uh, if you have some new information, uh, you need to get that to Michelle Harris as soon as possible because she's putting new directories out. These are all the kinds of things that we normally do in the first quarter of the year. And uh, then, you know, Rona. So uh, we're catching up on some things. Uh, we have a church family fun day kind of loosely scheduled for October the 18th, which is a couple of weeks from today. Uh, my family and I went out to Lake Wilson a couple of weeks ago, and it is one of the prettiest places in the area. We had such a great time. Uh, it's a little lake, and um, there are plenty of areas to picnic. They have a Frisbee golf course, uh, lots of just, it's a beautiful two-mile hike around the lake. So we're going to just take a day as a church family and go out there after church that Sunday. Um, I would encourage you to pack a lunch and whatever you like, a, a football or a Frisbee or whatever, and some lawn chairs, and we'll go out there and hang out a little bit and uh, enjoy each other's company and enjoy this incredible place that God has made for us. And uh, really looking forward to that. So we'll get you some more details about that in the next week or so, but looking forward to spending some time together. It's important that we do that as a church family. Uh, also, elders and deacons, you'll note that we have a meeting coming up on the 13th, which is the second Tuesday of the month in our normal meeting time. Just want to make you aware. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll dive in this morning to how God has revealed himself starting in Genesis 44. Father, you are magnificent in ways that we cannot even comprehend. But I pray that over uh, the next few minutes as we engage these next few verses that we would have a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done. Help us in our finite minds to leave here this morning with a greater, more grand picture of, of you. Help it to be expanded in the way that we think and in the way that we feel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For the last couple of weeks, as we've studied the life of Joseph and we've found his brothers making their way to Egypt, they still don't know exactly who he is. They only know that he is maybe the most powerful man in Egypt other than Pharaoh himself. We've seen Joseph test his brothers. He wants to know. Are these the same men who sold me into slavery and nearly took my life 20 years earlier, or have they changed? Are they new men? Are their hearts mended? Have they finally learned to love their family in the way that God instructs family to love one another? Now, uh, he's put them through a number of tests that we've seen already. He's um, tested them to see if they love money more than they love their family, if they'll tell the truth when uh, things have gone wrong in their lives, if they will stand up as stalwart men and own responsibility for their actions. He's, he's tested them in any number of ways, but this isn't foundationally what's happening here. Uh, I read a great quote this week, and it's a little long, but let me read it to you. Uh, this comes from Bruce Waltke, the eminent Old Testament scholar. He says, this scene, speaking of what's happening here in the life of Joseph, 
exposes the anatomy of reconciliation. It's about loyalty to a family member in need, even when he or she looks guilty. It's about giving glory to God by owning up to sin and its consequences, overlooking favoritism, offering up oneself to save another, demonstrating true love by concrete acts of sacrifice that create a context of trust, discarding control and the power of knowledge in the favor of intimacy, embracing deep compassion, tender feelings, sensitivity, and forgiveness and talking to one another. It's a story about a dysfunctional family that allows these virtues to embrace it so that they might become a light to the world. Well, that's a mouthful, and he's right for all of that. But at its basis level, the story that we've been looking at over the last two weeks is a story of a man named Joseph who, as still a kid, was hurt irreparably by the people who should have loved him the most. And he wants to know if he could go back to that day and put his brothers in the exact same situation as they were in 22 years earlier. Would they have wronged him all over again? Or are they new people? Now, obviously, he doesn't have access to a time machine. He can't actually take them back to that day, but he can put them in almost the exact same scenario, and that's exactly what he's done with his younger brother, Benjamin. Benjamin is the only other son who was born from Jacob's relationship with Rachel. This is his full-blooded brother who doesn't know that he is the long-lost Joseph, as well as the rest of the brothers. And so finally, the brothers have acquiesced to Joseph's demand. They have brought down Benjamin, and Benjamin is going to put, be put in almost the exact same scenario that Joseph was so many years earlier. Jacob's favorite son, the object of a love the likes of which the other brothers haven't received. Will Judah and Reuben and Simeon and all the others Respond in jealousy like they did with Joseph? Or will they do a noble thing, a selfless thing, and stand up for the brother? That's what we're going to see here. And we're going to start in 44. The goal for this morning is to work through all of 44 and the first half of 45, which means we need to keep moving. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1 of chapter 44. Uh, there are five sections here. We'll stop periodically and make some observations before we get to the end and start asking how do we apply this. This is Genesis 44, starting in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house. This is Joseph speaking to his steward. Joseph, who is still entertaining his brothers. He's just fed them very well. Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. He's already done this before. He's letting them eat for free. He's feeding the whole tribe of Israel back in Canaan free of charge. And put my cup, sneaky Joseph says, the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. Now, as soon as the morning was light, and this is a great narratival clue here, because a story that started 22 years ago is going to be resolved before the sun sets on this day. This is the day that we have been building toward. Dawn has come on the day of reconciliation. 
The men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Now up and follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Which is maybe the most important transactional question in the whole of human history. Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke these words to them. Joseph has just set up another test for his brothers. Let me find out how much you actually love this youngest son who is our father's favorite. I'm going to take my silver chalice. Now, I've already put your money back in your sacks. We've kind of gotten over this scenario. You've owned up to it that when you made your way back to Canaan the first time, the money was there. I know that you're honest at least about that. But now I'm going to do something else to escalate the tension. I'm going to take my silver chalice. And he says here twice, it's the cup that I use to practice divination. Uh, this was not totally uncommon in the ancient world to have one of these great silver gold chalices and they would pour some water in and they would pour some oil in and maybe some wine and all the weird gloopy things that happened on the top of the water we would try to tell the future by how it all worked out. It's no more silly in the ancient world than maybe throwing around chicken bones or rolling dice or whatever it is that they did. Is Joseph actually practicing divination? Is this really important to him? I don't think it is. I think it's just part of the ruse, but it heightens the tension. It's not just some cup. It's a silver cup, and it's not just any silver cup. It's the guy who runs Egypt, his magic silver cup, and you took it. Uh-oh. Maybe you're trying to steal some of the power and influence of this mysterious figure behind the curtain in Oz, which is Egypt. Go put it in the youngest guy's sack. Let's find out what happens there. So the tests are coming. They've passed the test of money. They passed the test of lying. They left Simeon. They came back for him. But this is the final exam. They have taken all the quizzes throughout the entirety of the semester. But this is the last day. It's worth 99% of the grade. Have you studied up to this point? Joseph wants to know. Well, let's see how they respond in verse 7. They said to him, why does my Lord speak with words such as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? They were honest with him the first time the stuff miraculously appeared in their sacks. Why would they try to pull off a new caper now? Whichever, verse 9, of your servants is found with it, they shall die. This is a pretty bold promise for a group of guys who haven't known what's going on for a very long time, right? But this is how confident they are in their innocence. He shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. You can see the guy who runs all of Joseph's affairs is scaling this back for them a little bit. And the rest of you shall be innocent. So only one of you is going to get punished. Whoever has the chalice, he's going to be a lifelong slave in Egypt. Now we know where this is going because we know that the silver chalice was put into the sack of Benjamin. Joseph is recreating the exact circumstances that he lived in 22 years earlier, right? Will the brothers abandon their father's favorite, who he has loved so much that he's virtually ignored all of them in his affections, so that he might become a slave in Egypt, right? 
And now the brothers are being started to, forced to relive all of the circumstances that they have borne this guilt for for two decades. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. The tension is just building here, right? Oh, Reuben, is it in your sack? No. Simeon, is it in your sack? No. Judah, is it in your sack? And you can feel their confidence building and building and building. Verse 13. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, and they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city in Egypt. When Joseph was sold into slavery, they took his coat, and covered it in blood. And the only word I can think to describe their attitude upon reaching their father Jacob was nonchalance. They didn't care. Whatever happened to Joseph wasn't important to them. They weren't concerned about their youngest brother. They weren't concerned about their father. They weren't even particularly concerned about acting like they were concerned. But here at Benjamin's guild, Undeserved or not, they tear their clothes. They are devastated. Devastated for their youngest brother to find a fate the same as Joseph and devastated for their father. Verse 14. Now when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? You're laying it on pretty thick, Joseph. We get it. I love this. that In the third person, we understand the ruse. But these poor guys had to be trembling in their boots. How in the world did you know to send the guy back after us to come get us? And how did you know the... Well, it must be through divination, not because I stuck it there when I told the guy, go put it in the sack and go find him. And Judah. Go ahead and underline that if you do, or highlight, or whatever it is that you do to mark in your Bible. Verse 16. Judah is stepping up. We saw shadows of this in the last chapter, but now it's coming to fruition. Reuben has been too weak. He's the oldest son. Simeon has been too weak. Who will lead the family? Well, it's Judah. Judah will lead the family. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? And then he says something absolutely astonishing here in the middle of verse 16. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in his hand whose cup has been found. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant but as for you go in peace to your father Judah, Judah the, the leader is strong and he's confident and he's responsible but he does this weird thing in verse 16 he, he admits guilt now the other brothers have along with Judah maintained throughout the narrative that they aren't guilty we haven't stolen the money we've found the money in some indescribable way. We haven't stolen the chalice. We're innocent of all the charges that have been leveled against us. So how come after a whole pericope worth of proclaiming our innocence, do the brothers then come out and Judah, as their leaders say, our guilt has been discovered? Well, it's probably because he's not talking about the guilt of stealing the chalice. What other thing could they be guilty of? Well, well now you see 
how they understand what's happening here in providential history. God is working sovereignly to bring them to trial for things that they did 20 years ago. God has remembered. God has brought them here. And God is punishing them by causing them a scene whereby they will have to return to Canaan without Benjamin and break their father's heart. He has been the judge, he has been the jury, and here is the punishment for their crime. They have to go break that old man down by telling him that another son has been lost and he'll never see him again. Only this one will be left. No peace is possible for Jacob. And he says, but as for you in verse 17, go in peace to your fathers, dripping in irony. There's no peace for Judah. There's no peace for his brothers. There's certainly no peace for Jacob. Then in verse 18, then Judah again. Judah. This is the maybe the, the great speech in the back half of the book of Genesis. Uh, the two words that occur most often throughout this chapter are uh, brother, which I think occurs something like 16 times, and father, which occurs 20 or 20 plus in this whole scene. Judah's going to own up to what they've done. Judah's going to take responsibility, and Judah's going to represent the entire family and all of their guilt in making this plea to Joseph. It is one of the most courageous moments in Judah's life. It's one of the most honest and bold and brave moments in the entirety of the book of Genesis because right here, a man who has absolutely nothing to offer is going to put himself prostrate before the most powerful man in the known world and ask for mercy. And he doesn't ask for mercy for himself, but for his brother. So see how this plays out. Then Judah, verse 18, went up in him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. You can feel the honor just dripping off of his tongue. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to you, Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother and a child of his old age. His brother is dead. He's inadvertently inaccurate here, right? His brother is not dead. We know that, but of course he doesn't. But you can see still the guilt that he's bearing from this admission that God has discovered what we did and he's punishing us. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Now think about what Jacob has done here. Jacob has loved Joseph and Benjamin in such a way and he said this before these are my two sons that now the leader of the tribe and maybe the greatest hope to lead the sons of Israel moving forward Judah repeats his father's words in such a way that disenfranchises himself from the family did you catch that and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him these are the two sons, right? Jo Judah understands what's up here, what Jacob has distorted. Then you said to your servants, now bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. 
And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. That is, you won't see me, you won't see the grain, and you'll go back to Canaan empty-handed, and you'll all starve to death. He has manipulated them into doing exactly what he has commanded them to do. And so Judah continues in verse 24, When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said again, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we can't go down. Unless Benjamin goes down with us, then we'll go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil in Sheol. Like I have been damned. This is the end of my life. I cannot live without this boy. My son, my favorite son. He's all my heart has left. And again, it's striking how Judah is not pleading for himself as his father's favor, but he's pleading on behalf of Benjamin. There's something self-sacrificial in what's happening here in Judah's speech. So he goes on in verse 30, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, well, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Twenty years earlier, they nearly killed the old man, and there was no sorrow in any of them. But they are changed men. Whatever wounds were within their hearts, God in his sovereign mercy has started to heal. And this boy cannot think about what it would mean to treat his father so harshly as to come back without Benjamin. We would send him down in sorrow. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to his father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Striking. Make a note here. Put it in the margins of your Bible and don't you ever forget it. This is the very first instance of human substitution and the entirety of the Christian canon. Send my brother back. Take me instead. The head of the tribe of Judah is offering himself out of love for the father to bear the consequences of the guilt of his brother. Does that remind you of someone? Does that strike up imagery in your mind of the great figure of the entirety of the canon? Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who out of love and deference to the will of the Father, takes the guilt of his brothers and sisters, paying the penalty that they deserved, and offering them freedom back in the land of their father? It is astonishing what has happened in the heart of Judah, and it is remarkable what the Father is doing through the story of the life of Joseph to build into the hearts and minds of believers for all generations. The guilty will go free. 
The innocent will bear the punishment. We need a hero, a leader, self-sacrificial. It becomes a part of the fabric of the story of the Jewish people, and it is an integral thread by which, if we pulled it, the entirety of Christendom would fall. We need a substitute who serves vicariously to do what we never could. Verse 45. Joseph is wrecked by this grand speech. He couldn't control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out for me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph was made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud. Oh, he's a weeper. He weeps an awful lot. You'll find that word repeated throughout the rest of our time this morning. So that even the Egyptians heard it. The Egyptian wisdom literature, if you went back, really valued as a supreme virtue being calm, cool, and collected. Uh, They were like the Vulcans of the ancient Near Eastern world, showing no emotion whatsoever. I know we got nerdy there for a second, but I know you know what I'm talking about. That's on you too. And what does Joseph do? Well, he belies his Hebrew heritage. He weeps so loud, everybody can hear it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. It is the great reveal in the book of Genesis. Uh, I remember a buddy of mine, I have a little boy, and for the first time he filmed this. They love Star Wars, and he showed them the Empire Strikes Back, and there's that great moment when Darth Vader reveals that he is, in fact, Luke's father. You killed my father. No, I am your father, right? Spoiler alert. It's like 40 years old. If you haven't seen it by now, it can't do anything for you. And he filmed the exact moment on his phone when the little boy saw the scene, and at like six years old, the kid went, no way. (laughs) Same thing happening here. No way. I am Joseph. By the way, uh, go ahead and uh, mark down somewhere Acts chapter 7. I want to say it's uh, around 10 to 15, somewhere in there. And Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives his speech before the Sanhedrin. Stephen, who was one of the most honest and honorable men in the whole New Testament, is giving his speech before the Sanhedrin. And of the very short things that he recalls in the list of the great spectacular redemptive history of Israel, he reveals that exact same line, right? He talks specifically about the triumph of the moment in which uh, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. I am Joseph. And then we get a great, wonderful, personal pronoun thing happening here. In uh, 42, 43, and all through 44, he has used the exact same referent for Jacob. Your father, your father, your father, your father. And what does he say here at the beginning of 45? Is, for the first time, my father. Is my father still alive? All of the tears have been leading to that question. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him because they were dismayed at his presence. (laughs) What? What? And so Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. 
for God sent me before you to preserve my life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years left in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And, and so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. It's the first time we've seen the word father used in that particular relationship. And Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You're like the grandfather of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. That's a safe place near to him where he could continue to feed them for the next five years. And you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And then I'll provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. He's hastening the narrative along. This is what we'll see next week. Jacob gets to see his favored son again. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. That's one of the sweetest lines maybe in, in Genesis, right? And then his brothers talked to him. One by one, breaking the barrier of embarrassment and guilt that had followed them for so many years, they walked up with their eyes. You can see the words from his mouth. The imagery here is so evocative. I, I remember sometimes when the girls were little and they'd fall and they'd stub their toe or skin their knees and they'd want to be close to you even after they get a spanking and they want to be close to you and they'd put their chubby little cheeks up on your cheek and they would just cry and you could feel their tears uh, one of them's back there right now something's <laughs> happening <laughs> you feel it on your face and you just hold them close and pat their little bottom and it's going to be alright you're alright and so here is Joseph, he's close to his brothers, and they're weeping on each other's neck. Fascinating. That Joseph, in his maturity, has recognized that it's God's place. God is the mover. God is the one who's been moving the narrative along. Uh, take a look at verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve life. Go ahead and note that. Verse 7. And God sent me before you. Verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Uh, later on in verse 8, God has made me the Lord over all of Egypt. Who proclaims with greater force and clarity the sovereign hand of a providential God than Joseph? He is the herald of God's providence. He is the proclaimer of his sovereignty. He is shouting from the mountaintops of Egypt to the entirety of the earth. There is one who rules it all. And it's not me. It's the God of Israel. It's the God of Israel. 
Now go ahead and turn over for just a moment to Genesis chapter 50. Over the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll take a look at Jacob uh, coming down to Egypt, and we'll take a look at uh, the end of Jacob's life and the end of Joseph's life as we get to the very end. But there's a verse here in Genesis chapter 50 that I know you already know. And it's the truth of that verse that we have been talking about really over the last couple of months. It's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And if you haven't memorized it, now's a good time to do that. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Near the end of his life, this is how Joseph summarizes all of the great things that's happened to him throughout the years. As for you, he says of his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. Do not fear. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. So let's go back to 44, in the beginning of 45, and ask this question just very briefly. Good for who? Good for who? Well, first, it's been good for Joseph's brothers. It's been good for Joseph's brothers. And uh, you have a little uh, piece of note paper there. I want you to go ahead and write some of these verses down so you can revisit this later. But I want you to see, asking the question, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In whom did God bring good things? First is Joseph's brothers, and in two ways. In verse 16 of chapter 44, 44, 16, right? When Judah starts his speech, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. We have this youngest one in who the cup has been found. How is that good for Joseph's brothers? It's good that because for the first time in a very direct way, for nearly 20 years, these brothers have been bearing this sin, they have been bearing this guilt, they have been bearing this embarrassment, they have been overwhelmed by the awful, evil, treacherous things that they did against their brother and against the name of the God whom they claim to serve, and God has brought it out into the open. Like a cancer that was growing inside them. God, the great and kind surgeon, has opened them up and taken it out. This is God's kindness in exposing their sin. It's God's mercy in allowing them to heal from what has been plaguing them for so long. Now, I, he doesn't just uh, resolve the issue of their sin. Go ahead and add another thing here. This is 45, verse 11. He hasn't just outed their sins and helped clear them of these guilty consciences and dealt with the ramifications of their sin, he's also been gracious in providing for all of their needs. What is it that Joseph says after confronting his brothers? I am Joseph, verse 11. Then come down here and I will provide for you. There won't be one more day during this famine when you'll wonder what you'll eat. There's not one more day when you'll wonder is there enough water in the well so that my sons and my sons' sons and all of their children can have cool, clean water to drink. All of your livestock, all of the things that you value, go ahead and bring it down here and I'll take care of everything. He has preserved his brothers. He hasn't just forgiven them and set them adrift back in Canaan. You come near to me. I'll take care of you. Remarkable what Joseph does. The second person that benefits from all that happens here is Joseph. It's Joseph. Now, of course, we've seen this great scene of reconciliation, but look at the things that Joseph says about how his life has turned out. In 45, verse 9, 
How has God wrought good out of the evil things that Joseph's brothers did? God has made me Lord of all Egypt. I'm like the father to the Pharaoh. Think about that for a moment. Hey, boy, come here for a second. Who talks to the Pharaoh like that? Only one person in Egypt. Only one could get away with that. Uh, he, he says uh, again in verse 13, You must go tell my father of all of my honor in Egypt. Joseph is doing very well. The first time they set him adrift in a pit, and now he stands at the top of the heap, the one who has the ability and the will to provide for all of them. Thirdly, the nation of Israel. It's good for the nation of Israel. Uh, go ahead and take a look at 45 verse 7. Uh, well, verse 6, for there has been famine in the land these two years, and yet five years left, no plowing, no harvest, no food, no hope. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. You remember that there was a promise that was made to Jacob's grandfather, Joseph's great-grandfather, Abram, just a few years earlier. There was this moment in Genesis chapter 12, and it's reiterated in 15 and in 17 and in 20 and in 21 and 22. Look, Abram, for a moment, up at all of the stars in the sky. The children that will come out of your line will be more numerous than all of these, like the sand on the shore. So I will make a nation out of you, a nation to be blessed, a nation to be a blessing. This isn't just about the individuals that existed in that generation, on that day, in that year, in ancient history. It's about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham to establish a nation that will never die. A leader from Judah's own line will lead them in perpetual peace, in prosperity that will last throughout eternity. And part of that is being fulfilled Joseph says right here in Genesis 45, I have sustained a remnant. Now, sometimes the nation would be strong, and sometimes the nation would be weak. Sometimes they would be powerful in the millions, and sometimes they would be but a remnant, but they would always, always survive. It's promises and passages just like this one that makes me think, by the way, if I could add here just as a marginal note, that I have no confidence whatsoever in what we are commonly called uh, replacement theology that the people of Israel have been replaced by the church and there's no longer any plan for them whatsoever. It seems disjointed in what we find repeated both in the Old and the New Testaments. And if you're looking for a passage to go back and think of in light of what's happening here in Genesis 45, go ahead and go to Romans chapter 11. God has a plan for the Jewish people. God has never abandoned his plan for the Jewish people. God has made an inordinate number of promises to the Jewish people and he will keep them explicitly to them. It's been good for Joseph's brothers. It's been good for Joseph. It's been good for Israel, and it's been good for the glory of God. Now, I don't mean to suggest that God needs anything. That's not what I'm saying here. But I am saying that God is the recipient of glory. I love this in verse 5, God sent me. Verse 7, God sent me. Verse 8, God sent me. Verse 9, God made it all happen. All of the great benevolences that are offered to all of these recipients didn't come from Joseph. Joseph isn't the benefactor of the nation of Israel. Joseph isn't the one who has brought food to the world. 
God has brought food to the world. Not Pharaoh, nor his gods, nor his court, nor even some unnamed benevolence has brought about life for so many on the earth. It's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the God of Joseph. It's the God of Israel. It's the God of Judah and all his brothers. He's the one who's done it, and he's the one who receives the credit, and he's the one that we glorify in light of his kindness and his compassion and his mercy right here in Genesis 44 and 45. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. He gets all the attention. And if there's anything that Joseph does really, really well is that he deflects the glory that he could have claimed for himself and gives it all to his God. Do you do the same? The life of Joseph begs that question. Let me add a fifth and we'll close. It has been good for Joseph's brothers. It's been good for Joseph. It's been good for Israel as a nation and it's been good for God's glory and it's been good for us. It's been good for us. It's been good for us because what will come out of Judah's line, a ruler king, self-sacrificial, selfless in the way that he loves his erring brothers and provides atonement for them by substituting his innocence for our guilt. It's good in that way. It's good, too, because it's impossible to look at a passage like this one and not see a mirror held up just inches away from our own noses because I have seen, and I think you have too, that at some points in your life, you have been Joseph. You've been innocent, and someone has just broken you down. Someone who should have loved you hasn't loved you very well. Someone who should have stood up for you didn't. Someone who should have put you first, put you absolutely last, and ran you over. And you see the kindness of God. You see the compassion of God. Allowing us as followers of Jesus Christ to be wronged to the core and not be overwhelmed by anger and frustration and a lifelong misery, but rather free to give God the glory and the prospects of reconciliation. Freed to be kind. Freed to repay hatred with love. Free to repay selfishness with selflessness. I think almost all of us at one point or another have been the Joseph in the story. And maybe even more remarkably, I think almost all of us in looking at the chapters here at the end of Genesis not only see ourselves in Joseph, but see ourselves in Joseph's brothers, that we have been the heartbreakers, that we have been selfish, that we have been unkind, that we have transpired to plot against the will and heart of God. And God has not condemned us to an eternity of the consequences that we justly deserve but God has moved toward us in grace. The great Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rad says, here in the scene of recognition, the narrator indicates clearly for the first time what is of paramount importance to him and the entire Joseph story. Here it is. God's hand, which directs all the confusion of human guilt, ultimately leads toward a gracious goal. 
I see myself in Joseph. I also see myself in Judah. And it's impossible to read a passage like this one and not be moved from time to time to fall prostrate before a gracious God who makes a way for all the sons of Israel. Father, when we are ignorant, help us to see your hand. When we are dull and blind, help us to be made quick and alert to how you are moving and to find that the great character of all of that movement is your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.